How's everyone doing today? Evan, you got the sound? All right. Okay, guys. No more fellowship. <laughs> so good to see all of you. How are you guys doing today? Um, hey, I got uh, one more major announcement for you guys. Uh, and, and here's the thing. This announcement is coming quickly and it is not, it's purposefully not allowing you to think about it too much because if I gave you too much time to think about it, anyone that would be interested in doing it would probably not do it. So, you know, based upon the last two weeks, first of all, I'm Josh, I'm the lead pastor here at Dwarf Hope. We're so glad you're here if you're a visitor. Um, you know, we've had some really, I feel like God is moving right now, uh, moving in Portland. I met with uh, a good friend, Tyler Staten, who's the new pastor at Bridgetown and just so encouraged by what God is doing there. And I just feel like the Lord is just doing something in the church in Portland right now. And we're seeing, we're seeing the spirit is, is moving. Uh, and a couple weeks ago, it was just a really powerful moment, I think, for us as a church, uh, reminding us of what Door of Hope is about, where we've come from, our history, and specifically, the vision that kind of inspired Darcy and I to plant the church was that, that we wanted to see a revival in the city of Portland. And I followed that up last week with, hopefully, um, a, 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 a kind of a new way of thinking about Holiness, because I think we get it wrong. Holiness becomes about like the negation of things, not doing bad things, when instead holiness is not so much the negation of things, but it's about a dedication or a single-minded uh, just commitment to Jesus, to desire to see him lifted up in everything we do. And so I, <laughs> I, I just assign, we're jumping back into the Sermon, uh, the sermon on the Mount, uh, the king, Kingdom of Grace uh, starting today. And we're moving into chapter six, which the theme of chapter six is what does it look like to practice righteousness uh, if righteousness is something that is, that is given to us as a gift from Jesus? Uh, and, and Ian has been assigned the passage on fasting. And I purposely did that because I knew he hadn't actually done much fasting. But I also knew that Ian, so this kind of started as a joke, okay? But not really a joke. So, I told Evan, I was texting with him, and I said, I gave Ian fasting. I don't think he's really fasted. And, uh, and I go, but you know what? If I challenged him to a fast, he, Ian's personality, he will not be able to say no. Um, and so I'm gonna challenge him to a seven-day fast. And, uh, um, and I'll tell him I'll do it with him. And I go, I bet he says, I bet without even hesitating, he'll say yes. So I'm like, hey buddy, I gave you fasting. I don't think you've really fasted, have you? And he goes, yeah, I've been a little worried about that. Again, I challenge you to a seven day of prayer and fasting um, uh, for one week starting this Sunday. And he goes, cool, I'm down. And then I was like, dang it, now I've got to fast. <laughs> so, but then I realized this is actually a Holy Spirit moment um, because I, I was struck by this, Ian's teaching through the book of Acts on Sunday night. If you guys want to come to service to Sunday night, it's, it's a different service right now. Uh, and I was struck by this passage in, in Acts um, chapter 5. Uh, and it's at the, at the end of, of, of 5 that, you know, Peter um, and John are, are basically persecuted. Uh, and they, uh, um, they come back, they, they get beaten, and they're brought back uh, to... Uh, um, they're brought back to... Uh, uh, to, to, their, to the house church. And, and this is the really cool thing. Um, is it five or is it four? I think that, oh, it's, it, you know what, I'm sorry, it's four. Uh, Acts chapter four, verse 31. And, the, and they share 
how they were praising God that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. And the house church, uh, this house church, this group of Christians, it says, and they prayed, the, uh, the, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And our message two weeks ago was unshakable. That God will shake away everything that needs to be shaken away until only that which is unshakable remains. But this is one of those powerful moments. And it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. One of the things you don't see in Acts is people praying for the salvation of the lost. What they pray for is the boldness to share the gospel with the lost. And what we need as a people is, if we want to see revival, is we've got to... How badly do we want it? We can't cause a revival. I do think we could prevent it. And I think that this is an opportunity. So what we're gonna do is starting, uh, starting today, we're gonna basically pray and fast through this week. So starting tomorrow morning, um, we're gonna have prayer here at 6 a.m. to 7, and then 12 to 1, and then 5 to 6 p.m. We're replacing our meals with a time of prayer. Fasting is hard, um, but it's a powerful thing when, you, when, when it's done for the right reasons. Now, some of you, everyone needs to weigh that out. Some of you might want to just give up something that's really important to you. Like, I'm going to turn social media off uh, for the week, or I'm, I'm not going to drink for the week, or I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to be committed to coming to those times of prayer. But what we are wanting to do is literally seek God for a real movement in a city that desperately needs the grace of God. Um, our city's hurting. And we have the opportunity to be conduits of love. And so this is a radical call. Uh, Ian and I are doing a, a, basically a water-only fast. Uh, and I'll break the fast next Sunday. Um, but this is something that we're inviting you. And here's why I'm inviting you into it. Because if I don't invite you into it, I won't do it. And this forces me to do it, whether you do it or not. Um, so tomorrow morning, starting at 6 a.m. So I'm encouraging you guys, don't think about it too hard. It's like getting a tattoo. The best decisions are impulsive ones, okay? Um, and uh, uh, you know your body, seven days, you're not going to die, you're just going to be hungry, but why not remind yourself that you do have the power to say no to the flesh, and why don't we actually ask the question, why aren't we more hungry for the things of God? Um, I think it's a great opportunity. Um, I was talking with John Mark Comer yesterday, who spends kind of his life's now given to spiritual disciplines. And he's gonna send me even some writings on fasting that might be helpful for you guys that we'll have available this week too at the church if people wanna come by or you can email me for it. So with that said, um, we're gonna jump right in the word because today I'm setting a goal, timer. You know, I recognize <laughs> the words of Jesus uh, have been haunting me lately when his disciples were troubled and he said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. And I need to tattoo that across my forehead. Um, and so uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna try to keep things more focused because really, once you cross over 15 minutes, you're not even listening anymore. And I've already done that in an announcement. So um, Evan goes, if you can just get past the first slide fast. That was his, his encouragement. So. Um, Go, okay. We are going to be looking today at Matthew chapter six, verses one through four, as we begin the second chapter um, of the Sermon on the Mount and kind of this kind of second movement for us as a church in the kingdom of grace. And, and this is all about what does it mean to practice righteousness? 
what is our motivations, what is our identity, um, what is the right way, what is the wrong way, and, uh, and this is, these are profound questions um, because uh, it can be easy, uh, the most complicated type of, um, of false movements are those that are wrapped in spirituality. Uh, when we think we're right with God because of the things we're doing, when in actuality, um, what we are doing is, is not leading us into deeper intimacy with him. And it says, um, I, I, I love this. C.S. Lewis um, said this, this profound thing, one of my favorite writings ever by him, in The Weight of Glory. And I have the quote behind me because I, I, I want us to have a hunger and a desire for the things of God because Jesus himself said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things shall be added unto you. And Lewis argues that our desires and the things that we pursue are often, be, are often um, uh, connected to a deeper desire to be connected to God, but we don't realize it. And so we connect that desire to all these things that break our hearts. And he says, he says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think this sets us up really well even for this call to consider prayer and fasting for the next week. It's like, is that, are we too easily pleased? Are we too quick to give up on the things that matter and, and, and then also at the same time far too impulsive in giving ourselves to things that actually rob us of real joy? Isn't it funny how many things we give ourselves to that has such diminishing returns? It's like the, the momentary enjoyment. Uh, is, you think about this, like drinking, you're like, it's so fun to have a few drinks with friends. But like, even, even you're not getting drunk, okay, great. But you still don't feel amazing the next day. If you, it doesn't take much to not feel good the next day. Or that, I'm like, man, I love, my favorite ice cream on the planet is Jenny's ice cream. It's not our, our weird. I, I don't want, uh, you know, uh, sea salt and, and meat in my ice cream. Like, what, I don't know, but like salt and straw to me is like, it's all about like how weird can we make the flavors. I like the, I like the gooey, it's called the gooey cheesecake uh, uh, ice cream. It's cream cheese ice cream with little chunks of cake and it literally is like crack cocaine. It is. Darcy and I discovered it. We like were eating like on vacation. We ate one every day. One night we ate two. Uh, and I'm like, but we both were like, I feel terrible today. It's like the, the reality of the diminishing returns because the greatest, the greatest pleasures in life are also often the most difficult pleasures. They require more effort. And all you have to think about that is nothing requires more effort than legitimate relationships where there is a time invested in a way that the relational bridge is built and there is real trust and real love. Nothing requires more effort than, than being in a relationship with someone where every day you have to repeat what I like to call the yes of love. Um, and so as we consider what it means to practice righteousness, I want you to know that what Jesus is pushing us toward is not a works-based salvation 
What he's pushing us toward is a salvation that works, a faith that works, a faith that a faith in Christ that allows Christ by his spirit to work in and through us. Let's look at the first, the first verse. And I think that we're gonna, we're gonna connect this to the concept of a holy ambition. Because ambition is not wrong. It's, it's desires that are too weak, that are misdirected. And the holy ambition here is Matthew 6, 20 says, beware of practicing your righteousness. The, the things that you do that are meant to honor God Beware of practicing those things before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And the question that I want to pose around this is, do we serve because we are loved or to be loved? It's a really important question. Are we serving others so that we might be loved by them and appreciated by them? Or are we serving others because we ourselves recognize that even though we are often unlovable, God has loved us? Remember what it says in Scripture, we love him only because he first loved us. Is love the motivation of your service unto God? Or is your desire to be recognized for your service because there's a deep longing in the human heart to be known and to be appreciated? And we're going to get to that at the end. There is nothing wrong with that. That actually is a right desire, but that right desire often goes terribly wrong because self-serving, the self-serving mentality of our modern culture uh, is, is, it's in the water. It's, It's sold to us in everything we read, in everything we watch, that you are the truest thing in the universe. And the healthiest place for you to keep yourself is at the center of that universe. But that philosophy of the world, tell me, how is that playing out in our culture? In a culture that basically says that I am the victim because I am my own God and everyone is threatening my kingdom. Therefore, everyone else is the problem. In, the, in, a, in a culture that is driven by the scapegoat mechanism, which is a mechanism that goes all the way back to the garden, to that primordial cry from, from Adam when he said, it wasn't me, it was the woman whom you gave me. And what did Eve say? It wasn't me, it was the serpent who deceived me. And what did the serpent say? Nothing, because he's like, you're right, I'm a liar. But human beings are the masters of, of deflection. It's not my fault, it's someone else's fault. Don't put that on me. And in our victim culture, what that does is, it, is that when we start seeing that our throne is threatened and our life is all about protecting ourselves, it, it, it creates an impossibility, if you will, to actually practice righteousness in a way that's righteous. Because the practice of righteousness is never something that can be done. Jesus is actually speaking here in impossibility. You can't actually practice righteousness if it is meant for you to get your own, your own God head that you think of yourself as, to be, your ego to be stroked. That isn't practicing righteousness. What he's saying is you're actually trying to do something that's an impossibility. Because the only righteousness that can be practiced by the child of God is a righteousness that flows out of one who is now in a right relationship with God, who recognizes that on their worst day, they are loved. 
And because they are loved, they now become open to God's presence in them that they might become a conduit of that same love to others. But here's the thing. I know very well how powerful this is for people. It's extremely dangerous for those in ministry, in full-time ministry. And in, in, let me just tell you, celebrity pastor probably should not even be a thing. It, it probably shouldn't be a statement. Because celebrity and shepherd are, it's like oil and water. The pastor's responsibility is to be the chief servant. They aren't there to receive the praise of the people. In fact, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, once said, a woman came up to him and she said, Pastor, this is the greatest sermon I've ever heard. Has anyone told you that yet? And he said, yes, Satan did five minutes ago. Now, I think he was being a little snarky personally. But I understand the point. And that is, is that it is a dangerous thing to listen to the praise of men over your gifts, over your talents. When we, we all love to have our ego strokes. We never want to hear, I mean, and that's the thing. Most people, very rarely do people give you criticisms. But I always tell the pastoral team, I'm like, listen, most people that talk to you, we're going to tell you that it was awesome. But I promise you every week there are many people that are listening to you that think it's the worst thing they've ever heard. So just, you know, just take that into consideration. It's like, I, and, and it's good for us to be knocked out. I think it's good when we get critiqued. It's good to learn sometimes humility through the school of humiliation. Because the moment we think that the service of God is about my position before others, we are in a very dangerous place. And actually, as a pastor, we put the church in a very precarious place. And nowhere does the enemy work more fervently and effectively than in the church itself. Our enemy are not the people outside of these walls. Our enemy is within our own hearts. We are the ones that actually drag the name of Christ through the mud. We are the ones who allow our egos to get in the way of real love. And so, on the back side of that, the question then, is it ever safe to actually have ambition? Is it, is, it, is it right to be a driven person? And I don't think that having personal drive or goals is, is at all bad. The question is, is what is at the back of those goals? What is driving you? What is the, what is the why behind what you do? And I just want you guys to know, I confessed a couple weeks ago, the reason I ended up on a six-month sabbatical is because I lost sight of the why. And here's the hardest thing, is I actually began to struggle with believing the kind things that you guys said. Because all I felt like in my attempts to, um, to lead a church, not, from, not out of my love and relationship for Jesus, but out of this kind of desire to push through the impossible task of loving people when I can't even get my head around what it is I'm supposed to be doing, where because I lost sight of the fact that I'm not here to, uh, I'm not here to find my identity in my service of Jesus, my service of Jesus needs to come out of my identity in Jesus. And I think that this is where we have to say, I want to, be, I want to be driven by a holy ambition. I want to call you guys to radical things like come, hey, don't eat for a week and come and pray for a revival. To me, that's a, that's a healthy kind of radical. 
What is not a healthy kind of ambition is, hey, did you think I was eloquent today? How would you think of my message? Because, you know, here's the thing. I would argue that even when we are preaching in the total power of the Holy Spirit, and you've heard me say this, I write about in the book, it's called the law of mixture. There is also the voice in the back of my head that comes out of my own very broken childhood, being a kid that never had a, a home I, like, I, never, I never had a, a place to really call home. I moved every single year of my grade school years. I changed school every single year. I never had friends. I had, I had stepdads that didn't like me. I had a mom who worked two jobs and I felt invisible. And when you feel invisible, you will be haunted for most of your life by a deep rooted desire to prove yourself to an invisible audience. And that invisible audience is usually not God. It's all those people that didn't see you when you were young. It's all those people. And I wanted to prove myself to my dad. But my dad died last year. So what do you do when you, they're not even around to be able to prove anything to anymore? And see, we need to be honest about this. And the power that we can have over doing righteousness with the wrong motivation is by just confessing our tendency toward it. Not by pretending like it's not, it will always be a problem. It will always be there. It doesn't matter what I'm saying to you. I still am wondering, like, do I look okay today? Uh, is my outfit appropriate? And just a side note on that, I just want to share with you, last Sunday is a great example of this. My wife, when I got home, she goes, honey, I have something to say to you. And I'm like, what? And she's like, what is going on with your hair? It's like a crazy mullet, and it was sticking straight out from the back of your head. You know, the people deserve more than this. She didn't say that. Um, but she's like, you've got to cut it, because, like, you work for the Palau's. It just, it just doesn't, it doesn't line up with, you're doing so much good stuff. Just do better with your hair. And that day, I, I, I went, and she goes, and that sweater, you look like you're in a Dr. Seuss book. Um, and so I was like, tell me how you really feel, which is why I cut my mullet off and Zion's. Uh, you notice we, neither of us have mullets. It's, look at how clean that is now. And so I don't have to worry. I'm, I'm able to release that now. Release that. I don't have to concern myself with whether my hair looks good because my wife says it does. And all the rest of you don't matter in regards to my hair. Um, <laughs> but the question is, is, do we serve to be loved or do we serve because we love? And nothing makes service a joy when we serve out of a posture of love, and even more so than that, when we aren't choosing to serve, but choosing to be servants. When you choose to serve, you're still in control of when you give and when you don't. But if you choose to be a servant, which is what we are called to be, then the things that we do should always flow out of a motivation of love. So I'm gonna ask you, do you have a holy ambition? What is the thing that drives you? What, what drives your day? What is, it, what is it that you love? What is it that you worship? I'll tell you what you worship. You worship whatever it is that you love most supremely. You worship whatever it is that you spend the majority of your time thinking about. And that, in our culture, is very possible that the thing you spent the most of your time thinking about is yourself. And I think that this is why we need to recognize that we aren't meant to be gods. And the worst master you will ever have in your life is yourself. And this is why... The only way that we're going to enter into the right kind of service when we allow a faith in Christ to, to give space to Christ and now work in and through us. Now we have a faith that works, a righteousness that works. What about the humble servant? In verses 2 through 3, 
I love this. He says, then when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, here's the thing. We live in an age in which people do things in front of people and get praised for it all the time. And you and I can do great things and people can praise you for it. But take no comfort in the praise of people over the things that you do. The only thing we should be taking comfort in is, is the fact that we are loved on our worst day. And, and every day we are gonna have really bad moments. And in spite of that, the, a right understanding of the gospel is very helpful in this regard. But I, I love this, he says, like, listen, people go, these people are gonna go out and their reward is the momentary praise of people. But here's the thing, how momentary is that praise? Think about our celebrities. It's fascinating to me, people that were massive stars. Being a, being a musician in, in the 90s, and I, I mean, I just remember like being a Seattle musician through the 90s and signed to Tim Kerr Records here in Portland in bands that, in my mind, well, these guys were massive, that generation younger, like my kids' generation, never even heard of them. You know, there's, you know, there's some people that, that hit that, you know, that strange place of like their art actually creates sort of an, an ever existing place in the human consciousness. But that's not the, most people even that hit stardom are forgotten. Our movie star, the movie stars that, that were like the top stars of my youth, like now they're old. It's weird, and, and what do they do to try to stay in the line? I mean, very few, very few end up like Brad Pitt, who somehow just manages to age like fine wine. Um, it's like George Clooney. But now he's gone, because it does pass. It all shall pass. But it's a fascinating thing how quick we, we seek the praise of people that won't even remember us. Won't even remember us. I, I think it's just such a sad, sad thing. It's like we're... we're seeking after something that's so fleeting. And this is where it all comes down to identity. It's one of the things that actually brought me to faith in my 20s is that here I got this record deal with Mercury Records at 22 years old. And that was my one thing. I'm like, if I don't get signed by 22, then I'm gonna definitely be washed up. Because actually in the 90s, it was weird to actually be an artist that was going in their 30s. Like, it was a young game. It was, it is fascinating that still to this day, right now there's this kind of, I felt like we went through these 2000s where more artists, and more artists were becoming successful in their 30s. That was like unheard of <laughs> before this. And I think the reason more artists are becoming successful in their 30s today is just because we're actually just sl so slow to mature. Um, but uh, but I, I just remember that, that, that whole concept of like, if you don't get it, you don't make it by this age, you're done. You're his, you're over. And I get signed, and then I'm like, yes, it's signed. And, and I got the girl. I, was, I remember I was opening for the Dandy Warhols, because we were label mates, and me and the lead singer fighting for Darcy. Who will Darcy pick? And she picked me. And then, but then the gods decided to, to favor the dandies on the success train. And, and I was a little bitter about that because I wanted the girl and the fame, and that didn't happen. And I get married, and one month after I get married, my single flops in two weeks, I'm dropped from my record label, 
and I have to take a job for minimum wage at a record store in Seattle called Easy Street Records, which had a mural of our album on the side of the building. And I'm selling my own record out of the used bin for like $2. And I just want you to tell, that's a good way to, be, to taste humility. And it was not easy. Most of us are optim uh, optimists if we pursue the arts that we somehow you know, convince ourselves that it wasn't us who got it wrong. <laughs> it was just that the right person hasn't heard it yet. But that does get knocked out of you after a while. And once I realized that my identity was actually wrapped up in being famous, it wasn't even in being, being a musician. In fact, I think my music suffered because of my obsession with being known. And that goes all the way back to those childhood wounds. And it, and it made me realize that this is, this is an easy thing and it's more dangerous. See, that's easy to spot because I wasn't a Christian. I was living fully for my dream. And I mean, I remember doing interviews and I would say stupid things when I was 21 like, like, what's the goal of your band? World domination. It's like, so dumb. So it's really dumb. Um, and uh, I remember seeing Radiohead and being like, oh my gosh, I will never be that good. And then within hours convincing myself, I was just having a bad night. I'm actually going to be better than that. Um, but that didn't happen. And that, and that crushing reality, why? Because my identity was in the dream that was, that was a fairy tale because most people will never become what they set out to become. Because we don't know ourselves, first of all. Most of us didn't, what you wanted to be when you were five years old is not what you're probably gonna be. Very few, my brother is like one of the few people that like, he wanted to be a train engineer when he was a little kid and that's what he is now. And now he doesn't like it. Because all these things are fleeting and that's not where we're gonna find our satisfaction. The question is, is what is your identity based on? And identity, in politics and in the world is a very big thing right now. But our identity as Christians is wrapped up in the words of the Apostle Paul. It is no longer I who live, but what? But Christ who lives in me. That I have been crucified with Christ. And the life that I once lived in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a powerful passage. So is our identity found in our service for Jesus or for the Jesus we serve? So if you don't know Jesus, the question I would just ask you is like, what, is, what are you putting your hope in? What is your identity wrapped up in? But for us as Christians, here's the most dangerous thing. It's easy to, to be able to figure out what our identity is when it's wrapped up in so outwardly like, that guy just wants to be a rock star. It's much more difficult when it's wrapped up in your Christianity. And this is where the rub comes. Because it is very easy to define our Christian lives by what we do for Jesus rather than ever asking the question, do I know the Jesus that I say I serve? And if your identity is wrapped up in what you do for Jesus, you are walking a very, very dangerous path. This is why uh, McDonald's said, that, uh, that a person can sit in the pew week after week becoming more and more of a devil without ever knowing it. Why C.S. Lewis kind of borrowing from, um, from McDonald's uh, ideas once said, he says that um, the, the slowest or the, the quickest path to, slow, or to hell is the gradual one. And the most dangerous position for us as Christians is to consistently fall into the trapping 
that we have to prove our lovability to God and to others. And so our service now becomes our identity. And listen, some of you, your love language, your identity is wrapped up. I've had many people over the years, people that are drawn to ministry often find their worth in serving others. But finding your worth in serving is not going to be sustainable and it leads to all kinds of unhealthy behavior, codependency and, and burnout because, because you're, looking to, you're looking for your approval in what you do. Some of you have perfectionist temperaments where it's like, I can always do better. Or, or that deep desire, it's like, I find my greatest value. What a wonderful thing to desire to help people. But how terrible it is when that desire twists into something ugly because your survival, your existence is dependent upon other people being dependent on you. And that's one of the most dangerous things in ministry is thinking that somehow you are Jesus. <laughs> that you are the Messiah. In the early days of Door of Hope, the reason I ended up in eight months of crippling anxiety is because the church was only a year and a half old and every week I had this sinking, terrifying feeling that if I don't get it right, they're not gonna come back. And the church kept exploding. And the more it grew, instead of feeling more calm, like, oh, they are coming back, in spite of the fact that I haven't preached a good message in like three months. Uh, and, and I'm like, there must be some, maybe they like my worship, that's why they're coming back. And so I would convince myself, but the, the horror grew the more people came. And by the time we were 800,000 people, I was like, I was crumbling because I believed this great lie that the existence of Door of Hope was dependent upon my gifts and my ability. And all of a sudden, I was now shouldering something that actually was not mine to shoulder. <laughs> and we only had two elders, so I felt like, well, that's happy. I remember Evan uh, came on after I came out of my anxiety. So it was like, it was just me and like two other young guys uh, and, and this guy, Bob Maddox. And the, I mean, I had two guys that didn't even like being in ministry. <laughs> and then I had another guy that was, had been in ministry his whole life, but was like, what have I signed up for? This young pastor who people are willing to come and listen to every week is literally having a mental breakdown. And I'm, he's, I think he was just like holding his breath, waiting for everything to truly blow up. I was actually creating a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, by believing that the church needed me, everything was dependent upon me and my performance was driving me crazy and had I continued down that path and had there not been a divine intervention and a true breaking that, in, that included some mental health checkups, a good doctor, some really good sleep, but most of all, some legitimate repentance. <laughs> and all of a sudden I realized like, the Lord's like, why do you think I've let you have some terrible sermons? So many terrible sermons because I want you to understand it's not about you, it's about me. And the church does not exist because of you, Josh White. The church exists because I have ordained the church for good, for the, whether it's good or bad, I have ordained it as my bride and as the primary means by which my gospel will be brought to the ends of the world. That should humble all of us. That God doesn't need you to do his work, but in his grace, he chooses to allow you 
to participate in that work and to, and to be a conduit of love. But your identity has to be in Him, not in what you do for Him. This was the great failing of Israel and it continues to be the great failing in the church. It's where legalism comes from and, it's, and we're all prone to it and we will all fall into it from time to time. And it's why we need one another. And that is Israel's sin is that God gives them the Torah, the law. The lawgiver gives the children of Israel, his chosen people, the law. But they weren't called to be chosen out of all the peoples of the world um, at the neglect of the peoples of the world. God says, I have chosen you, Israel, so that you can be a royal priesthood to the whole world. But they turned inward, and not only did they abandon the lawgiver, they actually gave their worship to the law instead of the one who gave them the law as parameters by which they could enter into real intimacy with him. And so it is for us. We often give up God for rules. <laughs> and this is why the world looks to the church and like, I don't want, everything you're doing does not seem appealing to me. Don't trick me, Christian, by saying, come as you are. Jesus accepts you as you are. Come, get off that ladder that's exhausting you and come and meet Jesus. He loves you right where you're at. And then we get him in the door and then we give him a list of things that they have to do. And if they don't do them, we tell them that God's probably disappointed in them. It's not surprising that people turn to performance as a means of proving their worthiness rather than recognizing that their worth is wrapped up in the only one who is truly worthy, which is Christ himself. Our identity is found in our, in our king and we serve out of that identity. And that is how we come to a place where we're not exhausted by our service, but instead it, it, it's energizing. When I call you to pray and fast, I don't want you to do that because you'll feel guilty if you don't. I want you to pray about doing it because of how exciting it is, what an adventure it is to actually take God at his word and, and to trust that Jesus meant what he said when he says, if you seek, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first and all these other things that you long for will be added to you. That the Christian life is not about a God who says no to existence. It's not, about, it's not about becoming a part of the board where you lose yourself. It's actually where you find yourself through the good death, dying to the lie of what God did not intend so that you can come alive in Jesus. What a profound thing. And for many of you guys, I'll just say it, because I know the tendency in myself and I trust that the human experience is universal. We often find our worth in our meaning through other people's dependence upon us. And that's not, that, that can't be where we find our identity. We find our identity in Jesus and then it's a joy to have people lean into us when they need our help. It's a joy to serve people, not because we need them to praise us, but we enjoy serving them because we love the king. And I think one of the great ways we can ask the question is what Jesus says. What's he essentially calling us to? A quiet generosity, a quiet service. Do you serve people and then love to point out to others what you've done? Because that just turns us into martyrs. Oh my gosh, look what I've given up uh, for Jesus. Now I am calling us to public fasting. And it'll be a temptation, if none of you show up, for me to say, man, what a sad thing that you guys didn't pray and fast. 
because I went all week seeking the Lord on your behalf. That, no, that's why I need you to come to keep, keep all of, we need each other to keep each other humble, to remind ourselves it's not about us, it's about Jesus. But it, uh, I think one of the ways that we can test how important is it, how important is the praise of man is driven by how loud are we when we do good things. And, and, and that's coming from a person who is just by nature very loud. Uh, and who gets excited about everything and wants to verbally process everything he's excited about with everyone he meets. This is, this is a great tendency. To do things quietly requires a confidence or a comfort level in your own skin. I know who I am in Jesus and I don't have anything to prove anymore. And I, I pray that that's, that's what we as a church are helping each other move toward. I don't have to prove anything to anyone because I am loved and I serve because I'm loved and because I have the capacity now to love. Finally, that secret satisfaction. In chapter six, verse four, he says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. If we serve God, our God and our neighbor in need out of love, what is our reward? If we serve our God and our neighbor who's in need out of love, what is the reward? It says that God will, will reward you. When we, when we do things in a way that we're not trying to draw attention to ourselves, this is not about, the Christian life is not about, by the way, the greatest virtue, C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, is not self-forgetfulness. The greatest virtue is love, which, which can lead us to the recognition that I'm happiest when I'm not obsessed with myself. Uh, but the virtue is not defined by the negation of something. It's not defined by a negative. The virtue is defined by the positive. Is it, it's not hard to put myself aside when I recognize how loved I am and how much God has called, how much God has given me in himself, what he has saved me from, becomes the motivation. But the question becomes, what is the gift? What is the reward? Uh, if the reward for those that are very public about, their, about how hard they, what humanitarians they are, all the good that they're doing, is that people, people recognize it, praise them for it, and then they're forgotten. What is the reward for the believer? And, and, and this is important because, because is it wrong then to desire the reward? One of the most profound aspects of Lewis's weight of glory, and this was an extremely impactful essay for me when I was young, um, was uh, when I first became a believer. It, it, I remember I read it for the first time when I was 29 years old on tour. And, and I was just blown away by it. He defines the word glory. And he says, glory can essentially be defined one of two ways. It, it either means fame or it means luminosity. And he goes, I didn't like the idea of fame because fame seemed to press, against, the, the idea of being famous uh, it seems to actually push against the very concept of the Christian life. So what does it mean for us to be participants of the glory of God? And he goes, it didn't, I, I'm not necessarily thinking that we should all be human light bulbs either, although I would argue that, that both being known and being light, both definitions of glory should be a part of the Christian life. But what 
Lewis points out is, what is the spirit of a child? And did not Jesus say, let the little children come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And what is one of the purest aspects of a child? The purest aspects of a child is to, is to know, the deep desire of a child is to know that they're pleasing to their parent. When they're, when they're well loved, when they live in a home where grace rules the home, my kids love to share, they, they love to share with Darcy and I. Henry and Hattie, love, still today, Henry was texting, he's in Paris right now, as he pursues his career in fashion and he's having the time of his life at Fashion Week. And it's like he shares with everything that he's doing with Darcy and I before we wake up. It's like he was texting me at 4 a.m. this morning. I'm like, the, it, all these pictures. And it's so excited. And he wants, he wants us to, to be a part of that. He looks to us as parents and, and is not driven by ego. It's driven by a, a, a safe love that he has experienced his whole life where, where it's meaningful to him for us to acknowledge what we see God doing in his life and, and, and the things that he gets to participate in. And we love to tell him that we're proud of him. Love to tell him that I'm proud of him. I wish I would have had a dad around to tell me he was proud of me. And the powerful thing is my dad ultimately did tell me that he was proud of me all the time um, the last couple of years of his life. But my son has no problem coming to us with what he's excited about and he, he wants our input and he wants our approval. And that is not ego and that is not sin. That is, a, that is a beautiful thing that is natural to the human spirit. The problem is that sin can actually pervert that pure thing and turn it into a desperation, into a self-absorption, into ego, into pride. But in its pure state, it should be something like a child. The, the child is, I just want to know, Dad, that I'm doing okay. It's like my daughter showing me a song she wrote. Like, what does she want? She wants me to tell her that it's good. Or she wants to tell me how it can be better. And, and, and to receive the accolades of a parent is a beautiful thing. And so it's not wrong for us to desire approval. It's just when our identity gets wrapped up in what we're doing rather than the one we're doing it for that that seeking of approval can be so damaging. In fact, Lewis goes on to say in The Weight of Glory, he says, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. Every one of us want the divine accolade. Well done, good and faithful servant. And what is well done, what does God want from you? And what is the reward? Well, let me just tell you, the reward that God gives can never be separated from God himself. But it is that sense that I was talking about last week around holiness. Holiness is having an undivided heart. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. You can be pure wine and be a terrible bottle of wine. Um, undivided doesn't mean that I'm now sinless. It just means that I am allowing God to be responsible for my whole person, both the good and the bad parts of me. I'm yours. You saved me, Lord. I'm your responsibility. It pleases God when his kids just look to him and say, help and thank you and, 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 and give, me, give me vision. And get, when we ask him, 
He, he has invited us to come to him and ask him for things. And when we delight in the Lord, and when we discover that the greatest gift that God ever gives is himself, and the ability to know that the creator of the universe, the one who spoke in the universe, left into existence, is the same God who loves you. That God, the one who spoke everything into existence, loves you. August, Augustine said, God loves every person as if they're the only ones to love. What a powerful thing. The reward is an undivided heart. The reward is, an, is, a, is the energizing of, that comes from God's spirit having more and more control over our lives. And the feeling that I am actually participating in God's unbelievable redemptive purposes for human history. That the redemptive song that God is singing and taking all the dissonant notes of our lives, all the pain, all the suffering, all the hurt, we don't need any longer. One of the great rewards of, of God's pleasure upon our lives is I don't need God to tell me why I hurt anymore. Because what I need is just to know that God has done something about it in Jesus. That's why we always go back to the cross. And that gives me the confidence not only to push through suffering, but also to enter into other people's suffering. The reward that comes from having our identity in Christ is that Christ actually has the ability, the savior of the world, to bring his saving love to other lives in your life. And there is no greater desire, as a friend once uh, said to me after coming to church for the first time in his life last year to Door of Hope, he left and he left me a voicemail when he got home and he said, Josh, I don't know what that, what, I don't know what it's called, I think it's just your talk. He didn't know even that it was called a sermon. He says, your talk, he goes, the word that kept coming to mind is it seemed useful. And he goes, what, what, would, what can be more desirable than to just to be useful? And I've found that, so he goes, I don't know if that's offensive, but I think it, I mean it in the best possible way. And I thought it was such a beautiful word to know that I am being useful because God is using me not because I'm trying to prove to God that I am useful. <laughs> to be useful, but not be seeking to be useful, but just seeking to be used by a God who loves us is a powerful thing. To surrender to his love and to become a conduit of that. That is the purpose of the gospel, and that is why we are ending at 41 minutes. All right, let's pray. Okay. Jesus, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the gospel of grace. Thank you for its power to bring transformation to our lives. And I pray right now that we would be a people that find the secret satisfaction of what it means to not find our identity in what we do for you, but to find our identity in you who wants to work powerfully in and through us for the good of others. And I pray for those that find their meaning and their value not in you, but in what they do for you and for others. I pray you'd set them free from that because it's a tyranny that will leave them restless. And I pray for those that actually have just given up altogether because they feel like all they do is fail you because once again, their identity is wrapped up in who they are and what they do and their shortcomings. I pray that you would set them free because whether it's the person that accomplishes much or the person that accomplishes nothing, the fact is, is that we all stand in the same place before the cross and, it is, and we are lost unless you do something about it. And we're told that 
No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. You did the saving Jesus. We did the sinning. And we just turn to you and recognize that all of us standing side by side, we all stand in the same place before you. We are sinners that are lost without your saving presence. And it is your goodness and your presence and your work that we want to see accomplished in and through our lives because we want to know you. Lord, forgive us for trying to arrive when all you're asking us to do is to know you and to enter into relationship with you. We don't work toward victory, Lord. We work from it. And so I pray that we would find that we are a real ingredient in your divine happiness. You don't need us, but you choose to not exist without us. And that is a profound thing. So I pray that your love would control our hearts and minds today, that we would invite you right now, your Holy Spirit, to come over us, to give us quiet spirits, and help us not only to see your love, but Lord, to see the people around us, that we would fall into the very words of G.K. Chesterton, how much larger would your world be if you were smaller in it? I pray, Lord, that our worlds would expand and our vision would expand because we're looking more outward than we are inward. Lord, we need you for that. And so we give you this day and this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheofhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.